Hey, good morning, Plum Creek. I want to welcome all of you here this morning, and I also want to congratulate our Plum Creek grads. Uh, we are so proud of you guys, and as you head into this new phase of life, I want you to know I am praying that God will do great things in you and through you. And I know that commencement ceremonies are happening right around this time, and that means you grads are hearing quite a few speeches, and I'm sure a lot of good things will be said in those speeches, but this morning I want to say just a few things that may not come up anywhere else. Uh, if I was speaking to you for the very last time, and I had only two minutes, here's what I would say, and I'm talking to graduates, graduates especially, but also to everybody in the room. First, I would make a statement that I say over and over again, especially at funerals. Here it is. Life is short. Eternity is long. And Jesus is our only hope. Now, as you go through life, especially as you go through adulthood, you're going to be tempted to forget this, but don't do it. Remember these three truths. Life is short. Eternity is long. And Jesus is our only hope. Now, if those things are true, and I completely believe they are, well, then how should we live in light of this? Well, the first thing you have to remember is you've you got to have a genuine, growing, life-changing relationship with Jesus. Without that, you have no hope for this life or for eternity. But if you do have that relationship, Jesus will lead you to spend your life in a certain way. He'll lead you to do these two important things, love God and love people. And it's great if you uh, are successful in college. It's great if you have a successful career and you end up with the family you always dreamed of. But the truth is, those things are secondary. Your primary goals in life are just these two things. Love God and love people. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're on board with everything so far, I would add one more thing, because none of us has the inherent ability to love God well or love others well. We need God's Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us to live out His kind of love. And so, Scripture tells us how to welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and this is the last piece of advice I would give you. Practice the spiritual disciplines. Pursue the spiritual disciplines. And, and when I say this, I'm, I'm encouraging you to develop certain habits that will ignite spiritual growth in your life. And we've been talking about these habits for the past month at Plum Creek. Uh, things like listening to God through Scripture and speaking to God through prayer. Uh, the habits of stewardship, of worship, of serving and I encourage you to pursue these spiritual disciplines because of that prayer that I'm praying. I'm praying that God will do great things in you and through you. And I am confident that if you practice these habits, you are far more likely to see God answer that prayer in your life. So that's my graduation speech. That's also my introduction to the habit we're talking about today. We're going to be looking at the habit of confession. And I am sincerely looking forward to covering this topic together. I'm really passionate about this, number one, because I have personally seen the freedom that comes from this habit, and number two, because there is an epidemic in the church, 
with people who neglect and avoid healthy biblical confession. And that epidemic should be very concerning to us because Scripture is so clear and so consistent that confessing our sins brings healing, freedom, blessing. Look at Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. That verse says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So in this one little verse, we're presented with two options. The first option is to try to conceal our sin and pretend that we're better than we really are. And the second option is to come out into the open, to come clean and say, yeah, I'm a mess. I admit it. I have sinned. I'm sorry, and I'm ready to change. So two different choices that lead to very different consequences. To to hide and conceal our sin, that blocks certain blessings in our lives. But coming clean, that's a path to, to mercy, to freedom. So it's very clear, isn't it? We should make confession a habit. But there's one little problem with that. We don't like to confess our sins. And we have lots of reasons for that. Uh, For one thing, we don't like to be embarrassed. We don't like uh, for others to look down on us. We don't want to lose respect. We've we've got these pride issues. We don't want to admit that we're weak. We don't want others to see that we're not as strong as they thought we were. But the truth is, so many of us walk around with guilt and with shame, and we just really resist bringing these things out into the open. So these are the barriers to confession. Uh, These are the things that make it seem like it's better to conceal our sin, to keep secrets. That can really feel like the better option, but it's not. The reality is confession is a step on the path to freedom. Now, if you look back, you can probably remember a time when that principle played out in your life. Uh, For me, the first time I remember experiencing this in a powerful way was in third grade. And I've told this story several times over the years because it was so formative for me. And here's what happened. Towards the end of my third grade year, we had a school-wide spelling bee. And I was pretty excited about this because back in second grade, I had won the school spelling bee. I had the medal to prove it. But I really didn't need to prove it because most of my class remembered what had happened the year before. I guess you could say I was the number one seed heading into this competition. And uh, expectations were high, but I didn't care because I was pretty confident myself. So the spelling bee began, and early on I was doing pretty well. Uh, In the first few rounds I got some easy words, knocked them out, no problem. But then in a later round, out of the blue, like some kind of cruel joke, They gave me the word faucet. I didn't know how to spell the word faucet. So I did the only thing I could do. I guessed. F-O-S-S-E-T. Faucet. (coughs) Sorry, that's wrong. Sit down, son. I was stunned. I, I was the smallest kid in the class. I wasn't very coordinated. I didn't have athletic ability And and here I had failed at the only thing I had the chance of winning. So I just sat there feeling crushed until the competition was over. And I have no memory of who actually won. What I do remember is my friends coming up to me and saying, Doug, what happened? You were supposed to win. And that was the moment 
that was when I uh, made a terrible decision. I lied. I said, oh yeah, uh, here's what happened. I decided that I should give someone else a chance to win this year. I lost on purpose. Now, I want to be clear about this. Even though I was just eight years old, that wasn't just a mistake. That wasn't just a, a lapse in judgment. That was a willful decision to do wrong. That was sin. Because I knew that lying was wrong in God's eyes, but I did it anyway. And I thought I could get away with it. After all, how could anyone ever prove that I didn't intentionally throw the spelling bee? Nobody knows what's happening inside my head, so I could sin and conceal my sin, right? Well, a couple things happened that I didn't expect. First, to my horror, my friends ran straight to my teacher, Mrs. Keith, and they said, Mrs. Keith, you won't believe what Doug did. He lost on purpose. What a guy, right? Mrs. Keith looked over at me, slightly sideways, and uh, she said to my friends, oh, he lost on purpose, did he? Now, if she knew the truth, she didn't say anything. So I just went home, and I tried to get on with my life. But here was the second surprise. I had a very difficult time of letting go of my guilt. Looking back, I'm kind of impressed. Uh, I had a pretty strong conscience. And I can remember lying awake at night, feeling so guilty and just thinking, I'm a liar, I'm a liar. Days went by, weeks went by, and still I just couldn't get past this. And finally, the discomfort of hiding my sin became so great that confession started to sound like a better idea. Now, by this time, it was well into the summer, and my teacher, Mrs. Keith, had moved several states away, but I had to tell somebody. So one night, I crawled out of bed, and I found my mom, who was still awake, and with tears in my eyes, everything came out. Mom, I lied. <laughs> I'm a horrible person. And I don't remember exactly what my mom said that night. But I do remember a couple things. I remember that she showed me compassion. And I also remember that she did not take my sin lightly. Now, I had already given my life to Jesus by this point. And Mom led me to pray and confess my sin to God. But she didn't stop there. She also had me write a letter to Mrs. Keith. And I had to confess to her as well. Now, was it a little mortifying to send that letter? You bet it was. But after that feeling of mortification, do you know what I felt? I felt freedom, like a weight had been lifted. I knew that God had forgiven me because of Jesus, but then I also got a letter back from Mrs. Keith, and she forgave me as well. And if you had asked the eight-year-old version of me if all of that was worth it, if, if the pain of confession was worth the joy forgiveness, the joy of freedom, there would have been no hesitation. I would have said, yeah, it was totally worth it. Now, I know that story is about a kid, but the principle still applies to grown-ups. It's very possible and even very likely that some of us here today are right where I was in between the lie and the confession, because there is sin in your life. 
and you've chosen to conceal it. Look back at that verse from Proverbs. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You know, I didn't mention it before, but there's something ridiculous about choosing that first option, trying to hide our sin. Here's the problem with that strategy. Nothing we conceal is hidden from God. If you have a secret, He already knows it. If there's sin in your life, He's completely aware of it, and He hates it. Now, God loves you, but He has a righteous anger against sin. For two reasons. First, sin is a direct offense to God's holiness and His righteousness and goodness. It's it's an act of rebellion against His rule. But here's the second reason why God hates our sin. Sin is what separated all of us from God. Sin is what broke the relationship between us and Him. God knows if our sin goes on unchecked, it leads to eternal separation between him and the people he loves, people like you and me. Sin leads to hell. So yeah, God hates sin, and he wants us to be free from the power and the penalty of sin. That's ultimately why Jesus came, to pay the penalty of our sin by going to the cross. Jesus came to free us, not only from the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. And when I was an eight-year-old kid, lying awake, racked with guilt, I was feeling the power of sin. And I happen to know that that experience is not unique to me. What I felt was kind of a weaker version of what King David describes in Psalm 32. Have you ever read this psalm? Man, it is powerful. David wrote it after he had an affair with a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. So he had committed adultery, but he didn't stop there. He also committed murder. Uh, He manipulated a military situation. He gave a battle command that guaranteed the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And in the aftermath of his sin, David was guilty. His sins were terrible, and he knew it. For a while, he tried that concealment strategy. So what was the result? Well, let's read Psalm 32, starting with verse 3. David writes, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That's a vivid picture, isn't it? David felt like he was wasting away. His strength was sapped. David felt like he was under a heavy weight. Can any of you relate to that feeling? I can. And unfortunately, I can relate to that feeling not only as an eight-year-old, but as an adult. Unconfessed sin holds a terrible negative power. But remember what we said earlier, confession is a step on the path to freedom. And secrets lose power when they're exposed to the light. Let's read on in Psalm 32 and see what David says. Verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. 
You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, David wasn't playing some kind of game with God. Uh, He came to God with genuine remorse over his sin. He confessed his wrongdoing. He brought his sin into the light. David repented. He turned away from his sin and turned to God. And he found forgiveness. He found freedom. Now, can you imagine deserving the death penalty and getting freedom instead? That's what happened to David. And when we belong to Christ, that's what happens to us too. We need to be clear about this topic for today. Uh, We're not talking about confession as a one-time event. We're talking about confession as a habit. And we need to incorporate this practice into the everyday rhythm of our lives. So how does that work? And why is it really necessary? Well, let's look at one of the most well-known passages in the Bible when it comes to confession. In 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John is, is writing about the identity of a Christ follower, and he says that we're to walk in the light of Christ and, and no longer walk in the darkness of sin. But in this chapter, down in verse 8, John says something very interesting. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, there is a great message in these verses, but if we're not careful, we can draw some inaccurate conclusions. In fact, many people have misinterpreted these verses over the years. So what is God telling us through John's words here? Well, the obvious thing is that we need to be humble enough to admit that we're sinners. And that applies not just to non-Christians, but to Christians as well. Nobody here has arrived. And nobody here has reached the perfection of Jesus. We still stumble. We still struggle. And there's no point in trying to hide it. Nothing we conceal is hidden from God anyway. But what's the good news here? The good news is, as we confess our sins, God is willing to bless us, forgive us, purify us. But right here is where I need to stop and clear up a few possible misconceptions. First, we need to know that John is speaking to Christians here. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, you have no promise of forgiveness or salvation. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. So don't assume that a person can live without faith in Christ, having never surrendered to Him as Lord, and then just look up into heaven after a sin and say, Oh, God, I'm sorry about that. We good? No, it doesn't work that way. Um, Jesus is the only way to find forgiveness. But then what about for Christians? What's the common misinterpretation here? Well, some people have looked at 1 John 1, 9, and they've said, wow, it looks like we lose our forgiveness every time we sin. And and that means we have to confess each sin in order to regain our status of being forgiven. Now, I understand how people get that idea, but that's not what this verse is saying. If that interpretation was correct, then none of us could ever be sure of our salvation. After all, 
How many sins have you committed in the past month? Can you give me an exact number? And don't forget, sin is not just the bad things you do. Sin is also the good things that you should have done, but you chose not to do. And on top of that, sin is not just what shows up in our behavior. Sin can also be found in our thoughts and in the attitudes of our hearts. So is it at all plausible that we could confess each individual sin with a perfect one-to-one ratio? No, that's not plausible. And that's why the grace of Jesus is so amazing. Look down just a a couple verses. In chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, and he's writing to Christians, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God knows that we're not yet perfect. That's why we need His grace. And as long as we have a genuine relationship with Jesus, we continue to live in a state of forgiveness, despite our sin. That's so amazing. And yes, we should be growing and changing, becoming more like Jesus over time. But we're not in this revolving door, constantly moving between wrath and grace, wrath and grace. Now, some of you may be getting a little nervous here because you can see how someone could try to abuse this grace. Someone might say, yeah, I kind of like this idea. This grace stuff is great. I can keep on sinning and God's going to just forgive me whatever I do. Well, let's not jump to that conclusion either. Let's remember that sin is a very big deal. It's an offense to God. It's extremely damaging on many levels. Based on 1 John 1, 9, it's safe to say that any person who harbors unconfessed sin is in a dangerous place. Now, can a follower of Christ be confident about God's grace? Absolutely. But if you are not willing to confess your sin to God, and if you're not willing to take the steps of repentance that lead to real changed behavior, well then, it's time to question whether or not you've really surrendered your life to Christ. And like I said, that is a dangerous place to be. So what does genuine confession look like? Let's try to nail that down. And we can do that by looking at a few less genuine forms of confession. I'll give you three examples of what we could call confession light. And we've said that true confession is a powerful step on the path to freedom. But be aware, there are watered-down versions that don't have that powerful effect. The first example of confession light is when we're looking for a loophole to keep sinning. This is when somebody's just trying to game the system. Like, I'm continuing to uh, commit the same sin over and over, but I don't really feel bad about it anymore because I know with a quick confession, I'm back in good standing with God. Well, the problem with that is God knows our hearts. He knows when our confessions are not sincere. He knows when there's no real remorse or repentance. The second example of confession light is when we keep it general, not specific. And we understand this distinction, don't we? Uh, It's easy to say, God, please forgive me of all my sins. It becomes real, though, when we get specific. Like, God, 
you know I was very unkind to my wife yesterday. I lost my temper. I said some hurtful things. I'm very sorry, and I'm ready to change. So let's make sure we get specific. Last example I'll give of confession light is when we refuse to confess to another person. Okay, now hold up. Back up the truck. Why we got to drag other people into this? Uh, Isn't this whole thing just between me and God? Well, that would be convenient for those of us who don't like to swallow our pride. But we got to look at God's blueprint for the church. He designed the church to share life together to encourage each other to follow Jesus more completely, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. When the church is working right, we get real with each other. Look at James chapter 5, verse 16. It says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, there's so much we can talk about in that verse and in that chapter, but you see the instructions right there. Confess your sins to each other. And you might think, well, that sounds mortifying. And yes, confession is mortifying. That's part of the point. That's what following Jesus is about, mortification, dying to ourselves every day, being crucified with Christ so that Christ can live through us. I know there is great wisdom in this verse because I've been around long enough to see a pattern. I've seen that the the sins we confess only to God are the sins we tend to repeat. I'm going to say that again because I want to make sure we get it. The sins we confess only to God are the sins we tend to repeat. When we keep everything just between me and God, it's far too easy to avoid accountability. It's too easy to rationalize or or to start to believe lies about God or about myself. See, here's how God set things up. We should see a direct correlation between confession and changed behavior. And if we're not experiencing victory over sin and we're not growing and changing to become more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, something's not right. But as we develop this habit of genuine confession, we will see life change taking place. And back to you graduates, I'm confident that you won't hear this in a commencement speech, but I'm telling you, confession will bring you freedom. I've seen it in my own life. In those seasons where I've held everything in and I've tried to just handle my sin by myself, Those have been the times when sin has taken a foothold in my life. But in those seasons when I've been consistent in confessing my sins, not only to God but to others as well, those have been the times when I've seen great progress. I've I've seen victory over sin, real life change. So if you want a strong and close relationship with God and you want strong and close relationships with others, make confession a habit. Now, some churches have a more formal process for confession. You may have grown up in that kind of church. But in many churches, Plum Creek included, there's less of a formal process in place. Now, there are certain pitfalls to a formal system, but there are also pitfalls when we just leave confession to chance. So this morning, I want to do something to encourage all of us 
to practice the habit of confession. But how should we do this? I was thinking about it, and I had one idea where um, we could all line up by these steps over here, and then one at a time, uh, just walk across the stage to a microphone and spill your guts. It'd be fun to see how many people head for the doors if we did that. But I, I don't think that's the best approach because we should be very discerning when we choose who to confess to. You should find someone you can trust, a, a mature follower of Jesus who will show you compassion and, and mercy, but who will also not minimize or rationalize your sin. You need someone who will understand you but not enable you. And you don't need someone who acts like a self-help coach, like uh, you got to do this on your own. You need someone who points you to the gospel, who points you to your need for the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out. So where can you find that person? Well, that's part of why we break down Plum Creek into smaller groups. If you were in a life group this year, your confession and accountability partner may be someone from your group. Or if you're a guy who went to the men's retreat, uh, one of the guys from that small group may be who you're looking for. I know many of you already have relationships like this, and that's great, but what if you are new to Plum Creek and you don't have strong connections here yet? Well, most of our life groups are on a break right now, but we are planning to, to start a short-term group just for the summer. And if you're interested in joining that group, just email me or Jared and we'd be glad to get you connected. Our email addresses are on the back of the bulletin. But the point is, uh, we need to build authentic relationships here where we get real with each other, where we speak truth and we speak love as we point each other to Jesus. Now, like I said earlier, we all have reasons why we hold back from this habit of confession. So I want to close this morning by actually practicing confession in this large group setting. And I'm, I'm going to lead us in a group prayer. I'm not asking you to uh, name your sins out loud, but I am asking that we go to God as a group and we confess our sins to Him. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pray through a list of sins, and there may not be anybody in this room who's guilty of every sin on the list, but all of us are guilty of at least some sins on this list. So as I pray, when we come across something that applies to you, I would ask that you pray along with me, just agreeing and saying, yes, God, that's me too. I've sinned, and I'm sorry, and I'm ready to change. So I'll start by reading a verse from the book of Isaiah. Early in this book, uh, Isaiah the prophet is, is writing about a time when God appeared to him in person. And Isaiah understood that he did not deserve to be in the presence of God. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah cries, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So let's humble ourselves and pray. And instead of closing your eyes, I'm going to ask that you keep your eyes on the screens um, because what we'll see there will, will guide us uh, through this prayer of confession. Holy God, we confess that, like Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips. And we not only have unclean lips, we have unclean hands and unclean hearts. 
We've broken your laws more times than we could count. We're guilty of pride, self-centeredness, unbelief, idolatry. So please, Lord, deal with our hearts. Help us know the seriousness of our sin and the greatness of your holiness. So please hear us now as we confess our sins in your presence. First, Lord, we've had other gods before you. We've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We've looked for satisfaction in this world's pleasures rather than in you. And we've loved to praise our own glory more than yours. Lord, we've also taken your name in vain. We've prayed religious prayers to impress others. We've uttered your name countless times without reverence or love. We've listened to others use your name in vain without grieving. Lord, we have murdered in our hearts. We've often destroyed our neighbor with our tongues. We have been quick to judge others in an unloving way. We've considered revenge when we were sinned against. Lord, we have committed adultery with our eyes. We've loved temptation rather than fighting it. We've lusted after unlawful and immoral pleasures. And we've justified our lusts by using the world as our standard. And we have stolen what is not ours and coveted what belongs to others. Our lives overflow with discontent, ungratefulness, and envy. We've complained in the midst of your abundant provision. and We've sought to exalt ourselves through owning more. Lord, we have lied to you and to others. We've told distorted truths, half-truths, and untruths. We've despised the truth to make ourselves look better. Even in our confession, Lord, we look for ways to hide our guilt. Father, your word says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And we know that we have no right to stand in your presence. But we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for giving us a way to return to you. And I pray that all of us here will run to you and never look back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, it would be a terrifying thing to confess our sins to God, except for his great love, his extravagant love, which we don't deserve. We're like King David. He didn't deserve it, and we don't either. But because of his love, we can run to and find blessing instead of punishment and penalty and death. We can find forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Now, if you're here today and you have never begun that life-changing relationship with Jesus, and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, put your faith in Him, been baptized into Christ, you can make that decision today. We're going to sing in just a moment. I'm going to be down front, and I'd be glad to, to walk through that decision with you. If you need prayer this morning, there will be a prayer team down at the front of the stage. They'd be glad to pray with you for any reason. Let's stand this morning and let's sing about God's amazing, extravagant love.